Amen. Hey, good morning. It's good to see you. Um, I haven't met some of you yet. I can see that. I've yet to meet you, and I hope to meet you after the service, but my name is Luke, and I'm one of the pastors here, the teaching pastor. I'm excited to be here, and I'm excited to start a new series today, right? Um, So if you have a Bible or an app you use, turn to the book of Acts, chapter 1, verse 1. Um, This is our sixth or seventh book of the Bible to go through as a church, and I'm very, very excited about this one in particular as we're about to go into. Um, And while you're turning there, there is this book that I have read over and over and over again. It doesn't have really anything to do with God, Um, but it's a book that I found when I was in seminary. Uh, I went on a trip with my wife to a relative's house. I think it was during Thanksgiving or something like that. I don't even remember. Um, But I remember finding this book on her bedside table, opening it up into the random place and just reading a couple pages and I couldn't put it down. I stayed up half the night reading it. And then I stole the book straight up. I stole it, took it back to seminary with me. And instead of going over the studies like I was supposed to, I just read the book. And then I went back and read it again. It's a book called The Endurance, written by Caroline Alexander. Um, It is a biographical sketch on the ill-fated journey of Sir Ernest Shackleton as he attempted to take a group of men to Antarctica, crossing Antarctica, and then to go back home, right? Um, Back then, around 1914, it was a little bit of an arms race to see who could do the best job of crossing Antarctica. It actually had already been done by then. The thing about the story is, is it's a total failure. He never makes it. He gets right off the coast of Antarctica, And some ice flows capture, hold his ship, and then crush it slowly underneath them. So they get off the boat. They drag all the stuff that they really, really need off of it. Start pulling wood apart to build sleds. And they watch their ship sink, the Endurance, all the way to the bottom of the ocean. And then they begin the process of dragging all of their stuff across land and frozen ice. For most of the journey, they weren't even on land. They were on frozen water, which is bizarre. Sleeping on t- in tents on the ice as killer whales circled underneath them. Just this crazy harrowing story that took over three years for them to get back. Here's the thing. All of them made it, and there was no mutiny. I mean, it's still today, it's considered one of the most brilliant and dangerous and courageous naval expeditions in all of history, in CEOs and big companies buy that book by the crate and they hand it out to all their top leaders and high middle management. And I can't quit reading it. It's a great book. I think I bought it for Wes once. It's just one of those books. The thing is, is there was no mutiny because everyone knew what they were stepping into. They knew before the ship left the port what it was they were walking into. They knew that they had a role and they had to function in that role for the overall thing to work. In order for the whole thing to work, in order for the whole expedition and endeavor to be a success, they had to stay in their lane and do what they were called to do. I know this because there is an excerpt of the ad that they put out to get the sailors for this mission before it started in 1914. This is what it says. This was in the newspapers and all over walls, all over London. Men wanted for hazardous journey, low wages, bitter cold, long hours of complete darkness, safe return, doubtful, honor and recognition in event of success. Now, when I read that for the first time, I got super excited, woke my wife up and said, you've got to hear this. Read it to her. She said it was stupid, rolled over and went back to sleep. (laughs) But I can't get it out of my mind. 
These men did not join this thing to get their love tank filled. They weren't trying to get their felt needs ministered to. They weren't on a cruise ship with a rock climbing wall or a buffet. They were out there to risk their lives. I mean, the ship is called the Endurance, which should tell you everything you need to know. Everyone sacrificed their individual wishes and their felt needs for the success of the whole endeavor. I love this. I think why I love this book so much and read this particular book so much is it gives me just a glimpse of the posture of the church in Acts. Um, There's no way you can read this book of Acts, all 28 chapters. There's no way you can read that and not pick that up a little bit. That they're all saying, I and my felt needs are not more important than the overall whole. This overall thing, this overarching sweeping narrative move of God as his kingdom's exploding and his people are growing, this is big and I'm a small part in it. And I'm looking to be underneath it. I'm looking to be with it, but I'm not bigger than it. You see, without a plan to be devoted to, without a gospel people to see yourself as just a little bit of a part in, without being devoted to the overall endeavor, it's easy to just become this wandering, self-fixated, restless mob looking for our own felt needs to be met. This is what we call consumerism. Now listen, I'm not going to bang up on that word. The word's actually an amoral word. We're all consumers in here. That's why some of you today will choose Earth Fair. For some reason, still, you're still going there. And others will choose Whole Foods, which is where you ought to be going, right? (laughs) Some of you have Netflix. Some of you use Amazon Prime. I mean, that's the only reason Amazon's even a company, right? Consumerism. The whole idea of consumerism is getting the most for the least. That's it. Very simple. Where can I get the most for the least? I'm, I'm look, right now, I'm shopping for a pair of headphones because my old one's broke, right? So I go in, Amazon, type in what I want, and 52 vendors come up saying that they can do a better job than the one right next to them. It's consumerism. It's not bad. We love it. The thing is, is we drag it into the church with us. We drag it into the church, the whole idea of where can I get the most for the least. And what that has done over time has eroded and shape-shifted the shape of the church, how the church looks at the city, how the church looks at people, how it looks at numbers, how it looks at gatherings, how it looks at everything. It's changed everything. This whole idea of consumerism, where can I get the most but not have to give very much? Listen, I think Acts will be a good book for you if you are looking for something a little bit more than just a perfectly executed Sunday service. I think Acts is going to be a very good book for you if you are looking for something more than just a living room filled with people that look just like you, that are very hip and cool, and make you feel validated and special inside. If you're looking for something more than that, Acts is going to challenge you and encourage you all at the same time. Why this book now? Every book that we have chosen to go through from the very first all the way to the very end, every book we've chosen has had a specific um, function for us as a church. We don't just randomly um, grab books and just stick them randomly in the calendar. We have a purpose for this, and we've been looking forward to this. I do believe that America, let's just say the Western church, is drifting a little bit. It's what, it's what experts call missional drift. It's almost like our compass is broke. It's cracked, and we're shape-shifting. We don't look like we know who we really are. It's kind of like an identity crisis. We're, we're part liberal, and we're part conservative. And I don't mean that politically. So take, take the red states and blue states out of your mind. I'm not talking about politics right now. I'll explain. 
because legacy is no different. You have the liberal church. Now, some will call this the social activist church or the social gospel church. I don't even know that those are very useful. Let's just take those out. Let's just say the liberal church is an umbrella title over many churches, over many people in the church. The liberal church is very, very good at seeing where help is needed. They're very good at seeing holes that were left, and they're very good at noticing why that hole is there, who left it there, and who's not helping fill that hole. They're very good at that. They're very good at entering the fray, getting in there. It's what in the residency here, it's what we, we talk about is getting boots on the ground, hands in the mud. Very good at getting gritty, getting next to those who need help. Their mantra is, we need to get to work right now. And work we do. We start sniffing out the smoking sections of culture. We plant a garden. We go to the laundromat and hand out quarters. We drink a beer with our broken neighbor. We do whatever it takes to get in the grit, in the grime, right next to those who really need the help. It's a very beautiful aspect of the church. Here's the complaint against it. The complaint against the liberal church, generally, is that as good as they are at getting in the grit and the grime, they're very poor at challenging very poor at actually bringing a remedy that can even help them at their ultimate need, which is becoming a Christian, becoming renewed, becoming born again. The complaint is is that they're poor at that, right? The conservative church is on the other end of the, the spectrum. And instead of saying things like, we've got a lot of work to do, they'll say things like, God will do all the work. We can go back to our bunker. We can go back to the Alamo and just camp out and do what we were doing because God will do it all. Not so good or interested in noticing where the holes are and filling the holes. But this is what they are good at. They are good at challenging. Very good at challenging. Very, very gospel fluent. Good teaching. Good preaching. Great books. Great blogs. Great conferences. Great accountability. Very good at that. Very good. And we have all been built up and all been fed by that type of ministry. Here's the complaint. They never get in the grime. They're not really ever boots on the ground and hands in the mud. That's not where you're going to find them. Listen, the missional church is both good at entering the fray and good at challenging. It's, it's good at both. The church on God's mission is. And it's not always easy to know which is which. Some of you are on God's mission and you have friends that are far from Christ. And, and I'm with you. I know what it feels like to wonder, am I going too slow with this person? I've known them for two years or 20 years. Should I be preaching the gospel more? Should I talk to them about their sin with a little bit more clarity maybe or with more conviction? Is that going to scare them? I just don't feel like I'm doing enough. Some of you have felt like that. And then some of you have felt like you've laid it down so thick, that's why you're not getting any texts or calls back because you might have broken something. And it's a little bit of a dance, isn't it? Wondering, which, which way do I go? Should I be more conservative with this relationship? Should I be more liberal? And I'm with you if you've struggled there. As a church, we're resolved to be missional. Not because it's a fad, not because it's a cool thing to put on your website. I don't even know that it is that cool anymore to put on anything. But we're resolved to do that because I believe it's the very center part of God's heartbeat for his broken creation. is to send a people, to be a part of our redeeming everything that is broken through the power of his Holy Spirit. I think it's important for us. It's not a fad. It's important. It's not even all that cutting edge. It's as cutting edge as AD 35. It's just not all that new altogether. 
So what I want to do is I want to lead you guys, and as a staff, as elders, as a preaching roster, we'd love to lead you guys through this book and spend some time looking at how God has handled his missional church, how he's maneuvered them, and how his gospel has exploded and, and pushed outward to all different kinds of socioeconomic brackets, all kinds of ethnicities, and creeped into all the cracks and crevices of broken mankind, wherever it may find us, whether it finds us in the highest of places or in all of our corresponding gutters. We get to see this in the book of Acts. When we began meeting as a church, as two couples in September of 2011, not that long ago, just me and Kevin and our wives, we hadn't even unpacked our boxes before we had resolved to be a church that sends, a missional church, a church that starts things that will in turn start things. Acts is a bit of a playbook for us, in other words. Um, right now, which it, it's not too far from 2011, and I'm a little shocked that we're even here, we're looking at planting two churches in the next 18 to 20 months, right around there. Two churches out of this place, and possibly one more another 18 months after that. So we're looking at three churches in a handful of years that will be sent out of this body, and we're not that big, right? We're not that big. So I start looking at Acts, and it encourages me, and it scares me all at the same time. Because what Acts does is it doesn't just show you, it doesn't just show you what it looks like to send, it describes what it feels like. You can kind of get it. When you read the story of Paul saying farewell to the Ephesian elders, and you can see what gospel goodbyes look like, the pain and the tears of saying goodbye to people that you're doing life with, digging deep, being sacrificial with money, time, talent, colliding with each other, making up, uprooting. It shows you what it feels like. And to be honest with you and a little bit vulnerable, I don't know how we'll do with this. I'm a little concerned. Sending churches is harder than pioneering and planting them. I'm just going to say it. Um, in my brief time in the ministry with my wife, we have been a part of planting, pioneering three churches and four campus ministries from scratch, from absolute scratch. That's seven starts, and that's hard work. All of them were hard work, this being number seven. Very difficult. I've been a part of a staff or a leadership team that has sent two churches. And we thought we knew everything to do, and we looked at all of the books, and we set it up perfect. Both of them failed. It's just glued to terror and glued to danger. It's hard because we have to say goodbye to relationships we've worked really hard on. It's difficult because it requires sacrifice, not just from the people being uprooted to be sent and to plant, but from us. It's going to cost us big. People won't understand. People don't like change. We want to get good at this. We want to get really good at sending, really good at assessing and designing not just men but families to do a good job of planting churches, droves of families. And let me tell you why this is so important to us, church planting, because it seems like we go on and on and on about this, and we do. Historically and statistically, it has been proven since we've ever even had numbers measure these sorts of things that the fastest way to affect city change is to plant churches that will plant churches. It's always been the fastest way to love a city well. We're bent on loving Knoxville, just as Wes had said earlier, right? We're sold to it, which means we have to get very good at planting churches that look like their context, their neighborhood, will, church, will also do the same thing, plant more churches. Or calm groups, however you want to look at it. 
We want to be very, very, very good at this. This is one of the primary reasons we are connected to the Acts 29 network. It's one of the primary reasons that we have a church planting residency here. That I can't believe it. It's six strong now. Six. It's amazing. So just to say it simply, it's part of our DNA. Acts makes sense. It makes sense for us. To be also very vulnerable and a little openly honest with you, I even believe that at Legacy Church we're drifting a bit. Now this is the good news. We're drifting right on time. Statistically, churches start to drift around year three and four. And then, because so many people come in, that you have to retrench and redig the culture out. Usually between years six to nine is when you see a second wave of new birth, of missional community development. And I, I would expect that something like that might happen, but I'd like to beat the numbers. We've been beating the numbers since we started. I'd love to see us become a missional church now. So as we look at the book of Acts, can I tell you what we're not going to do? A little bit of house rules before we jump into the text, Right? Because people get crazy when it comes to the book of Acts. People get a little nuts, and they just forget that this is a book about Jesus. <laughs> they forget that this is a book about Jesus and his church. There are some selected texts that show the acts of the apostles, but it's really the acts of Jesus growing his church through Jesus' people, right? So we're going to have to work really hard at not getting, let's just say, distracted, Because these texts, and we're going to cover an approximate 33 verses a day in order to keep pace and finish this in an understandable amount of time. There have been other men in other churches that have taken up to 200 weeks teaching this. And they can cover it all. We're not going to do that. We're not going to do that. But we do need to cover about 30 verses a day. What that means is that each chunk of passage will be pregnant with lots of themes, sub-themes, rabbit holes, good little chunks of preaching. There are going to be some things that we're going to say no to as far as teaching because it's not the main point. So this is to explain that. This, this will not be a series on spiritual gifts because that's not the main point of the text. It's not the main point of the book. We love the spiritual gifts. We've done two series on it. You can find it online. We've spent adequate time going in and dealing very, very detailed with with intricate care on the spiritual gifts. This won't be a series on that, okay? It's just not the main point. We're going to try to hit the main point as we travel through this. But if you have questions, you can always text the the question line. We will do the best we can um, answering those live for you. Also, we're going to do a good job of writing blogs that will go along with every sermon that will kind of maybe do um, some good research or explanation on, on a part of the text we could not hit. So another thing, and I think this is probably important. I'll throw this in there. Another way that Acts can get a little crazy is it's easy for us as people to not really understand if what we are reading is descriptive or prescriptive for us. And that's a big difference. Descriptive is just what it sounds like, God describing something to us. This person went to this place and they did something pretty cool, right? Prescriptive is God giving us an imperative that should alter our actions, shows us how to behave or how to not misbehave, how to better image the gospel. Those are imperatives for us. A lot of times, teachers even will get those wires crossed, and they will take something that is descriptive, and they will make it not only normative for today, but binding on you, right? You see it a lot in the Old Testament. That's probably the most widely abused, but you will see it in Acts a lot of times. We're going to do the best we can to show you what is descriptive and what is prescriptive. Even today, we're going to see that. Today, in today's text, we see the casting of lots to choose one leader over one who was passed on. Judas is gone. They have to pick Matthias. They do that through the casting of lots. 
We don't do that anymore. That's descriptive, right? That's not how we're picking our comm group leaders. <laughs> we're not rolling dice or flipping coins. I'm not up here because I drew the short straw. That's just not how we assess leadership and employ leadership in this church. But they did it back then. It's not prescriptive. It's descriptive. But even in the descriptive portions of Scripture, there's good teaching. And we're going to hit that today, even, even with that little case. Uh, like, like raising people from the dead. We see that. Don't worry, she's not dead. She's just sleeping. Is that a prescription for you to walk into every funeral home you drive by and walk in and calm everybody down because the person's not really dead? No. That's a description. Don't do that. Unless God's telling you to do it. Don't do it. Right? Paul. Paul does some nutso stuff in this book. Nuts. He calls blindness on a magician, which we'll get to in a few weeks. Because this guy is getting in his way. He's trying to preach the gospel to an influential figure on this island, and this magician won't shut his yap. So Paul says, you know what? Done with this. Blindness on you. Deal with it. And the guy goes blind. It's a description, folks. It's a description. I will say this, just as a side note. I tried that in college. (laughs) When I was at Texas Tech, I was talking to a guy preaching the gospel and a witch. Well, he called himself a witch. I don't know what he was. But he came on, and he started running his yap, running interference. And I read Acts that morning, so I straight up called blindness on this guy. Oh, yeah, I pronounce you blind. <laughs> Which, and he didn't go blind, so I look like a total idiot, you know. <laughs> that was descriptive. That was not prescriptive. I thought if Paul could do it, I can do it. This is a good time to do it. Those are the ground rules we have. All right, I'm going to jump into the text for today. We won't spend a lot of time on it because I just spent a good 15 minutes or so introducing the book. The first week's always a little bit difficult because you're introducing a book and a text. Um, But open up your Bibles to Acts 1, and we're going to get started. This is the word of the Lord for us today. It's very good for us. Thank you, Lord. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Okay, let's just pause right there. Verse, verse 2. Luke is the one writing this to Theophilus. We know that because this is a mirror image of the introduction of the book of Luke. Book of Luke, longest book in the New Testament, Acts, second longest book. There are basically two volumes of the same work. Okay? Theophilus was a common Greek name. It just means lover of God. It could also have been a code name for a grand people, Right? Some have said this was even his publisher. It doesn't really matter, okay? It's just probably worth noting. Verse 3, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Okay, pause. I'm not going to take a lot of time to teach on the baptism of the Holy Spirit, meaning I'm not going to take any time. I've done two sermons just on that, and you can find it online. Also, it's on the website right now. I wrote a blog um, for this passage, and what the blog does is it shows you the difference between having the Holy Spirit, being filled with the Holy Spirit, being baptized in the Holy Spirit, and being clothed with power from the Holy Spirit, okay? So we get those things confused, and you can go at LegacyKnoxville.com. The blog's at the bottom. It will teach it, and you can comment away on the bottom if you want or ask more questions. Verse 6, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? 
And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And that is not just the pinnacle passage for this chapter, it's the pinnacle passage for the entire book of Acts. That's it. That's the anchor, and it doesn't get much further from that anchor, okay? And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? Because that's always a helpful question, right? I mean, if there's ever a time to stare into the sky, it is when Jesus is floating around in it. You can stare at the sky. I don't, I've never even read a scholarly commentary on that that has made sense. That just question doesn't make much sense to me. This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey, which is about a kilometer, just under a mile. And they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, son, James, forgive me, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. All of these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer. Over 40 times we'll see that in this book. Together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. This will be the last time Mary, the mother of Jesus, is mentioned. And actually, ironically, now that we see his brothers are part of the church for the first time. Verse 15, in those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. And said, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood, or a field that has been purchased with blood money. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp be desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us. One of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Okay, and that's the last time Matthias is actually mentioned too. A history and um, legend have it that he was martyred in Ethiopia. So, out of that whole text, there was a lot there. I, I would say that still the most important passage not just in that passage of that grander passage, but for us today is Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Here we see expandable mission, scalable mission. 
We actually see directional mission. You see Jerusalem, and then a little bit further out, Judea. And then the next town over, the next region over is Samaria. And then all the way to the furthest reaches. So you could almost say that the scope gets wider and wider. But I think what might be a bit more accurate is saying that the people get more and more different. I think that's probably the better way of looking at this passage. What does it mean for us? We're, we're being told to be good witnesses by the power of the Holy Spirit in Jerusalem. For us, that's just our home. That's our home. That's the tightest quarters in this whole expandable mission. It's the people you do life with, your spouse, your kids, those you're doing life with here, right? Those who are in your community group. They're the ones that you know and that you know very well. It's interesting that when in this book of Acts, whenever you see a father or a husband becoming a Christian, it doesn't feel like it's but just a breath away and the rest of the family does too. How do we become witnesses? Here's our struggle when being witnesses in our own home. Our struggle is very simple. We become more liberal than conservative. Liberal because we're already in the fray. It's in our family. It's in our community group. It's just people that were already in their spheres and their rhythms. We're already boots on the ground and hands in the mud. We can't but help it. But we don't do a good job of challenging. We don't do a good job of seeing change affected. This is partly because we're lazy and we just want to coast, partly because we just want to relax and we feel entitled to that time. And I think it's also partly because we think we have more time than we do. I know I need to have that conversation with my son, but I've got plenty of opportunities for that. I know I need to talk to Garrett about that thing that happened at that time in our missional community, but man, listen, I've got plenty of time for that. I know I need to have a serious talk with my wife, but not tonight. Tonight I just want to hang out. Right? It's easy for me to be very liberal and not very conservative, not be missional when it comes to home, Jerusalem, home. Also, we see it expanding to Judea. Judea was a province. It was a grander area, right? These are people, not home, but people that you understand. People of the same context, the same culture. It'd be easy for you to drum up a conversation and find many things to talk about with another Judean, right? You're at the store. You're at the gym. There's no big cultural boundary that you have to work really hard to cross. You get them. You understand them, and they get you. And we see this with Paul as well. Paul goes to a lot of places. When you read about it in Acts, where does he start off when he enters a new city? Goes to the synagogue, goes to the marketplace, goes to where the philosophers and all the smart guys go to. Why? Because he's a smart guy. And he was a Pharisee. I mean, that's his stomping grounds. That's his hood. He knows those people. Those people know him. And it affects quick ministry, quick mission. Why is this a struggle for us? What does our Judea provide the most challenges? Being in Judea a lot, I'd have to say, I just don't want the discomfort. Again, I take a liberal posture. Again, I take a liberal posture where it's easy for me to be um, in the fray. It's easy for me to be right next to them, working out next to them, working with them, living next to them, but not really wanting to bring the gospel because I feel like it's going to wreck everything. Some of you have felt like this. If you're honest, you felt like this. I really need to tell that dude about Jesus, but as soon as I do, (laughs) it's going to screw everything up. They won't want to hang out anymore. It's going to make it weird. It'll be weird. I'll walk in the room and everything will be weird from that point on. That's why I don't want to do that. So discomfort keeps us from being bold witnesses in Judea a lot of times. And then we see not just 
Jerusalem, not just Judea, but in Samaria. Samaria is interesting. Those are people that are not like you culturally. You do need a social IQ and a cultural IQ to know what you're doing when you're around a Samaritan. It's hard. You see Peter and Paul in the book of Acts doing this as well. They will always find themselves flanked with people that are not like them. And you see them working overtime, crossing those cultural, ethnic, socioeconomic boundaries in order to make sense and apply the gospel in a way that truly ministers to them. They do a brilliant job of it. You see, the problem with Samaria is it's filled with Samaritans. <laughs> and Samaria is interesting. Some of you, you might not even know what makes Samaria any different from Judea or any of the other provinces. You see, way back in the 700s B.C., so several hundred years before Jesus was even on earth as a baby through Mary, before all of that happened, you had Samaria in the northern kingdom of Israel. The northern kingdom of Israel was pulled down by Assyria, which was the the fad of the month, the, the world power of that age. And what they did is they took all the best out of the northern kingdom. They took the brightest. They took... The, the apex, all the officers, the beautiful people, the babies, the ladies, the strong men. And who did they leave? The crippled. They left those who couldn't offer anything. The old, the feeble, the unimportant. They left them there in the Samaritan region. And then they repopulated it with people that they had conquered from other lands. Not too long after that, Greece comes in, repopulates it with their own people, and then they Hellenize the whole thing. So when it's all said and done, they don't look very Jewish anymore. They're, they're kind of like a, a, a weird form of Judaism that the, the southern kingdom, Jerusalem and Judea, they don't really want anything to do with them because they're half-breeds. There's racism going on here. This is nothing more than racism. It's not much more complicated than that. They're, they're half-breeds. They're heretics. They're teaching that you worship at a different place than they teach. They're teaching a, a little bit of a different Bible than the Jews in the southern kingdom preach. So you have this Hatfield and McCoy's thing start to crop up. The Samaritans are mad at the Jews because the Jews won't accept them and vice versa. What does it look like for us? Where are you racist, first of all? Where are you Samaritan? Who is, who is the half-breed to you? Who do you really have to work hard to understand? This is why we don't do ministry. This is why we don't witness with the bold power of the Holy Spirit to those who are Samaritans in our life is because it takes too much work to really figure out what it feels like to be a single black mom. It's just going to take too much work. To figure out what it means to live on less than $16,000 a year, that's going to take too much work. I don't want to flex the muscle relationally to figure that out. Let them do their own thing. Let them clean themselves up or let them clean themselves up before they get to us and then we'll take it from there. You see what that does? It takes a conservative posture. Now it's not a liberal posture anymore. Now it's, I don't want to get in the grit and the grime. I'll, I'll challenge them once they come to me, but I will never go to them. Right? Samaria for us. It's hard. There's failure there. And then to the ends of the earth. This is the marginalized, the abandoned, the let go, the forgotten about, the lepers, tax collectors, prostitutes, criminals, and we see all of this in the book of Acts as well. Not just Jerusalem, not just Judea, not just Samaria, but all the way to the forest reaches. I love this. The edges of, of mankind. The edges of mankind have always been frightening to people. Right? 
Way back when sailing was kind of a new thing and the world was still flat, it wasn't quite round, sailors would get a little fritzy when it came to sailing too far and exploring because they were afraid of what? Sailing off the edge of the planet. Who wants to do that? So they get a little freaked out about what? The edges of creation, the edges of humanity. Friends, we're no different. We're no different with our big, vast, round globe. We're the same thing. It's just that our fringe edges, the far edges, they look a little different. They look like prostitutes and addicts and drunks and criminals and the homeless and the hateful and the orphans. It's the far edges. It's very hard for us to imagine having a conversation with someone in that class, isn't it? Unless we're being compelled to by some evangelism project and we're shaking and sweating all over ourselves with a tract in our hands. Beyond that, settling up to a bar next to a guy who's had way too many, talking to a mom with a black eye, those conversations are difficult to have. And again, we take a conservative posture. Clean yourself up, and then I will have something to do with you. It's not missional. Here's the thing. We are the edges of the earth. Catch this. You've got to catch the beauty of how God put this together. I'm not talking about physically. Now, physically, whenever this was written, Knoxville was the far edges of the map. They didn't know East Tennessee existed, right? A lot of people today don't know that East Tennessee exists. But back then, they didn't even know America exists. We were, and we're still preaching the same thing. It's beautiful how God's kingdom keeps going and going and going, and the church just keeps teaching and teaching the same stuff. But beyond that, spiritually, we are the far edges. We are the far edges. It's the gospel for us. Our missional king didn't just go to the far edges of the earth to reach us. He got down in the grit and the grime with us. He became very missional. Boots on the ground, hands in the mud. He clothed himself with the same skin you and I have, laughing with us, crying with us, teaching, campfires, stories, memories, pain, heartache, celebration. He did it all with us. Tempted in every way you're tempted, but never sinning. It's beautiful what God did. He didn't just go to, he didn't just stay in Jerusalem. He didn't just stay in Judea. He went. He left the glory of the triunity to enter our madness and our gutter with all of our jagged edges to reach us, to save us. And this is the king we serve. We were sinners when he found us, we were the far edges. I mean, if you're a Christian in here, if you're a Christian in here, just know when the Holy Spirit changed your heart from stone to flesh, look at Ezekiel, just know that when regeneration happened and you were redeemed from your own exodus, just know that you were a drunk. You were an addict. You were on the far edges. That's what I, you might not have been drunk on wine. You're drunk on something. Money, power, self-image, comfort, whatever it is. You were hateful enemies, throwing rocks at man, throwing rocks at God. You were prostitutes. I was a prostitute going after any lover, any lover that would give me what I wanted over the groom that had come to rescue me. We are the unreachable. We are the disgusting. And he loved us. And he didn't just love us enough to come with with gloves on so he wouldn't get tainted with us. 
They didn't just come and say, I'll come this far and I'll only challenge you if you come a little bit closer on already cleaned up. He didn't require us to be cleaned up. He jumped in our madness. It's beautiful. It's beautiful how he works this into this passage. Now listen, God's grace is so good that he knew how much we would struggle with this. He knew how much we would struggle with being too conservative, being too missional, and not figuring out how to really do this thing. So he gives us grace. Gives us grace. And he gives us the Holy Spirit to not just be witnesses, but to be bold witnesses by a power that is not even earthly. That's a fun place to be. And we'll talk about this later. We don't have time to talk about it today. But whenever it says the power of the Holy Spirit, it is not just talking about having dynamite skills all of a sudden or signs and wonders all the time. It's not even talking about it. That, that would be thinking way too small. It's also talking about the joy we have. Read the blog. The blog talks about that. But by God's grace, we will be good at witnessing of what God has done for us in all Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, all the way to the edges of our scary little world. On your way to your daddy-daughter date, pray for the Holy Spirit to give you power to be a witness at home. When you go to the gym or go downtown, pray that God would give you the power of the Holy Spirit to be a bold witness to those that you understand, your Judea. Pray God would give you courage and power from the Holy Spirit so that you would do good. You would do good witnessing Good witnessing, high fluency with those who are Samaritans and to the edges of the earth. I'm almost done. Why do we do this? Why be a witness? Some of you are asking that. For years I asked this. So what? Why do we do this? Right? I think there's three reasons that people are bold witnesses, and I think two of them are bad. Right? One of them is, is I think that we're bold witnesses so that people don't go to hell. And that's why we do it. I think one of the last church camps I went to, I saw this skit. It was kind of corny. It wasn't a real big church camp, so quality of the skits were way low. <laughs> and I don't even remember what the skit was about. I just remember the last scene. It left a mark, right? And it was five or six dudes with all black on. They were supposed to be demons, I guess. And they're dragging this screaming guy out of a room who was going to hell, I imagine. And so they're dragging this guy, and he's screaming and thrashing, and they're muscling him out of the room. And who's he screaming to? who used to be his best friend, who is sitting in heaven. Sitting in heaven. And what is this guy coming out of the room? He's being pulled out. He screams, if you'd have just told me, if you'd have just told me, I would have changed. I would have been a Christian. And then the lights go dark, right? And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, it's on me. It's on me. I better get to talking. I don't want to be that guy. Who wants to receive that, man? Let's be that dude. I don't want to be that dude. So we start to be witnesses out of obligation, out of fear that your perform or poor performance is going to damn people, doom people, right? And this is what produces this wide army of people we have out there handing out tracts, going on short-term mission trips, shaking the whole way. They're not even out there, a lot of them, a lot of them. They're not even out there because they love God a bunch. They're out there because they're scared to death that the blood will be on their hands because they did not preach the gospel effectively to people. So their whole life becomes about damage control. Friend, this is not what you will see in the book of Acts. Check that. That is not what you will see in the Bible. Okay? Your failure in witnessing, it's not that big. It's not big enough to frustrate God's plan. If God has his mark on a soul, he's getting that soul. If God wants to reach a leper, 
He's not requiring or waiting on you to have a good day. If he's looking for kings to be radical kingdom people, it's not all up to you. This shakes some of you. Some of you grew up with this theology. I did 12 years preaching the gospel out of fear and obligation. It is not biblical. Text in your questions if you want. The second reason I think people are witnesses is because we're supposed to be. So now it's not out of fear that the other person could be in trouble. It's fear that we could be in trouble. I have to do this. It's not out of obligation or fear. It's out of shame, shame based obedience. So we do it because we need to check that box off. Not to save that person, but to save myself, right? Showed up to church? Check. I own a Bible? Check. I listen to John Piper? Check. Right? I'm in a calm group? Check. That was a hard one. Check. I'm on mission? Check. I told someone about Jesus today? Check. And we do it and we sit in services thinking I don't have to feel bad the next time someone preaches on it because I'm doing it now. Right? If that's ever crossed your mind, it's out of shame, friend. We are not called to witness to something that becomes a burden to us. We are called to boldly witness of one who lifts burdens from us. Lifts burdens from us. We don't serve a God of supposed tos. We serve a God that is in love with us. That sweeps us up in his arms and whispers in his ear how much he loves you. And how excited he is that you belong to him. It's a different God. Listen, if you're witnessing to people right now and you hate every minute of it, just stop and ask yourself, why am I even doing this? Why am I doing this? It's a good question. There's a better one. Why do you feel bad for not doing it? Are you scared that something bad is going to happen to you? Are you scared that something bad is going to happen to them? Ask yourself, I think the best way to be a bold witness, the best reason, is just because we love to talk about what we love. Amen? We love to talk. Whenever I, and the closest I can describe is being filled with the power of the Spirit, again, read the blog, the closest I could feel, I feel this joy come over me, and I can't shut up about what God has done. I pray for those moments. Listen, God will use your good days and your bad days, your eventful moments and your uneventful moments to purpose His church outward. He does, all right? But man, it is so fun to be full of the power of the Holy Spirit, to be full of God's breath, His Spirit, and proclaim God's Word. It is a blast talking about what you love by God's power with a clarity and a conviction. We're not IRS agents talking about tax code. If you're in the IRS, by the way, you're welcome to Legacy Church. It's good to have you here. I'm sure tax code's fun for you. And here, I would love to finish this way. If you were a failure at being on God's mission, and many of us raise our hands here, and I have seasons where I go super dry here. I go seasons where I'm all turbos, foot to the floor, and I am just preaching to anyone that will listen. And then I have seasons where I'm super dry. If you're being a failure, if you're a failure right now, grace speaks differently over your life. Grace doesn't use words that sound like failure. Grace doesn't sound words out that sound like waste, disappointing. It's just not part of the vocabulary. Grace doesn't look at you that way. Why? Because you're awesome? No, because an awesome one has come before us for the very fact that we could not be awesome. 
Listen, our king, go ahead and stand with me. We're going to be finishing here. Our king, our hero king, Jesus, is in the business of finding the outermost and making them the innermost. Finding the uttermost, finding the most distant and drawing them the most close. Read the Bible. It's all through it. We're going to see it all through the book of Acts. And it's so fun to see. He's in the business of, he's in the business of taking who is outside the city and drawing them to a banqueting table. He's in the business of taking those who are worse than outcasts and making them better than children. Why? And does he expect them to come? No, he goes and gets. He goes and gets. Carries his message with him and gets. So if you are failing at being on God's mission, be excited and being encouraged that you worship a God who does not fail at being on mission. And you're the fruit of it, Christian. You're the fruit of it. We serve a good God. We serve a good God. We serve a God that got his hands dirty with us. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for this time. God, I thank you. I know there's several different people in this room, and Lord, it's so hard to preach to all the different hearts. It's difficult to do that and do it well. My God, your Holy Spirit does something brilliant in the fact that it can do that very very thing. Speak to a hundred different hearts, a hundred different ways. Lord, whether you use anything that was said today or not, Lord, I pray that you would minister to hearts today. Lord, I know that there are many in here who are beaten down because they have failed so miserably at being a bold witness. Lord, I ask that you would encourage them with your love for them. Sure, Father, we want to all be bold witnesses, but not for the wrong reasons, and the reasons do matter to you. We don't want to be religious Pharisees. We don't want to be operating out of obligation or fear or guilt. So, Father, help us. Help us see you more clearly, that we would just speak more clearly. Father, I know that there are people in here who are far from God. They're far from God. Maybe they know that, maybe they don't. And Lord, I pray that you would minister to their hearts, that you would show them the gulf, that they are at the outermost right now, the outermost, as far out as as can can be had. They are out there, but Father, you are a missional God, a missional king that doesn't watch from afar, but enters our world, that you'd show them how much you love them, enter their world, and quicken their hearts. Raise them from the dead. Take their heart of stone and make it a heart of flesh. Father, for all of us, help us see our home, our neighborhood, our area. Help us see it more clearly. Help us understand mission more clearly. God, we love you, and ultimately, we thank you because you're so good. You're so good, Father. Your grace, the fact that your grace won't even recognize some of the words that we apply to ourselves, like I feel like an outcast, or I feel like I'm a loser, or I feel like I'm always screwing stuff up. And what you say is, despite you, I give to you. Grace says to us, Lord, and we understand that your grace says to us that we receive blessing and favor totally despite our worst failures and even despite our best attempts to get that stuff ourselves. You're so good. You're such a good king. Lord, it's in your name that we pray. Amen.